Hey, thank segue. you. Yeah, that's a segue. Now we've done it. Thank you, Scott. And uh, it indeed is a privilege to show up every day at work and enjoy what I do. I know that for many, they, they work to earn a living, but not necessarily love it like I get to love what I do. I get to uh, be myself and disciple people and study the Word of God just about every day of my life. And, you know, what a better life to live than this one. It, it's something that I don't take for granted. And I love to open the Word of God each week to you. It's a joy and privilege to dig deep in the truth and have things sort of emerge in the study and then to reflect that off of my heart to you. That is just uh, the the thrill of my life and what I love. And it's been a real blessing to, to bring my family here and to experience Anchorage Grace Church, also Grace Christian School in Alaska, and all the relationships. It doesn't take long to get interwoven with uh, you guys, and so um, we've enjoyed it quite a bit and look forward to this just being sort of the foundation year and a launching to greater things. A couple of things that Scott mentioned that are on our hearts as elders, uh, and you know, we want you to, to hear these things and to sort of give us your feedback and to join into our excitement about it. This room right here is a multi-purpose room, and we want to keep it as a multi-purpose room. It's a room that serves us kind of as a, a missions post every week of our lives. It's Awana. It's a place where we have um, dramatic presentations. We have fellowship suppers, and we also have Grace Christian School here, having cafeteria time and, and uh, all kinds of PE classes and things that happen uh, throughout the year at Grace Christian School. And we want to keep it that way as a facility But we also want our Sunday morning worship to reflect a real focus on the Word of God and excellence and excellent worship. And we want to try to enhance that through uh, just good stewardship of this room. As Scott mentioned, it's been 14 years since uh, Paintbrush has touched this place. So we want to kind of pull things down a little bit off the walls and and paint the place and uh, try to create as few of distractions as possible um, in terms of what we're doing on Sunday morning. We, we also talked about framing out the stage with some stone facade or some actual stonework um, on the sides here for some columns. And, and just again, to, to bring a transcendent, God-glorifying uh, sort of message and uh, you know, beauty here in uh, this room and yet keep it fully functional. Uh, there, there's, you know, some stuff that we have that we can do right away that, as Scott mentioned, there was an anonymous gift that's been given to get us off go. But we're hoping that this will also grease the skids for some future development. We had a company come in that has designed and decked out several churches, about six or seven in Alaska and also across the lower 48 in terms of sound, in terms of sound panels and uh, some lighting and, and some things like that. And that's a more expensive ticket if we were to undergo a project like that. But we're going to do phases one, two, and three, which is really painting, um, some stonework. It's, we're going to add an additional preacher's porch, which we already have, but we're going to enhance that and put a pulpit out there to get me a little bit more out into the crowd and, and get a, a closer connectivity there. Uh, but... Then down the road, probably just a few months down the road, we're going to begin to pray about and actually present a phase four, 
which will be uh, something that we can prayerfully consider raising money for to give us a new sound system and some greater um, lighting and, and perhaps a new screen and some curtains and some things. Again, to give us a laser-like focus on the glory of God during Sunday morning worship. So be in prayer about that. We kind of wanted to let the cat out of the bag as soon as possible so nothing hit us by surprise as we dialogue through these things. And it's great, by the way, to have a person like Steve Pauls as an associate pastor. For all that he is pastorally and all that he does in terms of day-to-day facility use, etc., he is a masterful designer and is trained and skilled to, uh, to, to architect projects like these and to do them well and to do them as inexpensively as possible. So we've got, we've got some great um, people to make this happen. And and we're also set up and designed to, uh, to serve. And so there might be some great service opportunities for you to be involved in this refurbish, in refurbishing process. In terms of Alaska Bible College, you might want to grab yourself a trifold. We've had those out in the foyer because we believe in this college. We've kind of been connected theologically with them and biblically and in terms of mission for years. And uh, we have a relationship to uh, one of the people on the board at Alaska Bible College uh, through the Richardsons. And, and because of the providence of God, this college is coming towards us. Uh, they're wanting to sort of relocate themselves um, in Anchorage. They've had classes by extension at another church, and those classes are coming over to us. And the good part about them coming to us is that it just kind of folds right into our mission of education, K-12, to because our Grace Christian School, because it's a college preparatory school, has a level of excellence that fits right in with something like Alaska Bible College. You could take, for instance, college um, you know, AP courses as a junior or senior and get double credit if you take a Bible class at Alaska Bible College that way, where it's credit back to you as a high school student and credit towards your college education. And selfishly, I also think if my kids or other kids want to stay in Alaska after they graduate from Grace Christian, they could stay at a school like Alaska Bible College for a year or two and then transfer those credits to a place like Master's College or Moody Bible Institute, Cedarville, Liberty, and a host of other Christian colleges. So it's a way for for kids to get a running start into um, where they're going to end up in college or to stay at Alaska Bible College and graduate and go into full-time ministry. Also, part of Alaska Bible College's mission is to have students who are working in local churches for internship credit. And just like our own Luke Harlberg is here serving in children's and serving in the youth ministry this summer as an internship, which is part of the curriculum for where he is at Moody, the same thing would be happening here with Alaska Bible College students who are kind of required and who want to be a part of local church ministry. So we can perhaps use some great resources in some 18 to 22-year-olds who will be around. Finally, Alaska Bible College is wide open to anyone of any age to go and take those courses. And so we'll have Bible survey courses going, theology survey, or theology courses going, um, all kinds of specialized elective, Bible elective courses, counseling courses, and things that you could really benefit from, benefit from in your personal sanctification and spiritual growth. You may want to take courses like that for credit, and you might just want to take those courses as a, a way for personal enrichment. 
But we want that curriculum and that sort of emphasis to be here and be available for all of us to enjoy probably in the evening hours uh, after, you know, high school is done, junior high and elementary is, is done and, and they've closed up shop for the day, then moving into the evening hours is when we would have courses. Um, and we'll, we'll detail more of that for you um, as the summer continues on because fall is coming and you need to, you need to know when these things are going to be available for you. Um, One other thing uh, in our body that I wanted to mention is Heather and Leo Masters had their baby this weekend. I don't know if you were aware of uh, Heather and Leo Masters. Heather was, uh, you know, she looked like she was ready to to sort of uh, have the baby, but she was still seven weeks early. And so uh, the doctors recommended, hey, this baby needs to come today. And so on Saturday evening by cesarean section, the baby was delivered healthy, and her name is Amalia Masters, and I guess she's going to go by Molly Masters, which is kind of cute. And she's four pounds, nine ounces at this point, give or take, and uh, is healthy, tiny, and in the NICU at this time. But we can pray that all will go well, and she's healthily, you know, sort of in the NICU, so there's no alarm in the Masters household. So good, good information. I was able to pray with them, and they were in good spirits, and um, we're just rejoicing over the birth of their baby. All right, well, I want to take just uh, 30 seconds and keep, re- keep really tight to this, but have you stand again and greet others around you in the Lord. Take 30 seconds to do that now. back in and take your seats. Let's take your seats now and bring it back in. Let's draw thanks to a a close and a focus here. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 and 32. I'm going to read these verses. They're on a very sober topic, the topic of divorce, and I'm going to read them and pray one more time as we focus on the word. From the lips of Jesus, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words, and Lord, I want to approach them very humbly. Lord, I am well aware that many in this room and in first hour have been hurt by divorce. And God, many are struggling day to day and night to night with the pain of either having parents who divorced or um, being divorced or being part of a divorce or having friends who are going through a divorce or the list goes on and on. But God, whatever the case may be, I pray, God, that you would comfort the hearts in this room. Give me the sensitivity to teach a topic like this in a way that would be pastoral, that would fill people with hope. 
that would re-anchor people in the Word of God and would highlight the gospel that gives the strength to make it through and persevere through something as difficult as divorce. Our culture, it makes light of divorce. It often trivializes divorce, and I pray that this message would not do that, but God, we would take divorce very seriously, and we would look at it from a biblical standpoint. We need to hear from Jesus Christ this morning. I pray, God, that many in this room would be equipped to counsel other people, whether they've been through a divorce or know people or have friends that are going through something as tragic as this, that they could use the Word of God from what's taught here this morning in the lives of people around them. In Jesus' name, amen. Divorce is a heavy topic, and our culture and society often trivializes divorce, makes light of it. I googled divorce uh, this week and just was looking at some different things that popped up on the Google list, and a couple were advertisements for quick and easy ways to have a divorce. Um, One of them was advertised saying, divorce is online and it's fast and easy. It's premierly affordable, affordable and inexpensive, and it can be done from the comfort of your own home. For the price of $249, documents are customized whether you have kids or not. And it just goes on and on trivializing this three-step divorce process. There was another one I saw that was uh, talking about how 250,000 satisfied customers have used this process to have their divorce. And it's like it's uh, advertising for lawn care service or something. It's not talking about the dissolution of a marriage, of course, right? I mean, it's three easy steps, easy divorce solution, and it talks again about the ease of having this done, eliminating court fees and lawyers, just working through the process. Well, we see the tone in that, and as Christians, that um, repels us. It's repulsive. It's not what divorce really is. Uh, Whether you've been through one or not, you know that divorce is hard And it is a pain that doesn't always, all the time, go away. The world tries to gloss over it sometimes, but the world also knows that divorce is hard as well. I was reading an article about a guy who actually wrote, ironically, another article that says how to save thousands on your divorce. But then he turns around and writes an article uh, that's on how even short divorces, I mean short marriages that end up in divorce are difficult as well. And he writes it kind of from his own personal testimony and experience. He says, divorce hurts and we need to consider why it hurts so badly by considering how we arrived to a divorce situation. Even short marriages that end in divorce are difficult. He says, look, you remember when you first met your ex and all the expectations you had, how she complimented you, she laughed at all your jokes, she accepted you, she completed you, you thought for sure you were going to grow old together. You thought you were going to have kids, you thought that you would be able to look at your kids and say, I'm so proud of you, and you got engaged when you got engaged, people congratulated you. It was very public. It was as if you were, you were welcomed into the marriage club. And everyone was happy for you, almost everyone, right? But then there was a public ceremony, and 
and everybody was happy for you, and you went off to your honeymoon, and you walked on the beach, and it was just a wonderful existential experience where time was standing still. And then not too far down the road, all of a sudden you have a reality check. And suddenly, for the first time, your world is completely falling apart. It's not like a breakup where you break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. This is something that's cratering your entire future. All that you had expected would happen for you and having a fulfilled relationship with someone else is dashed. All the private moments that you were expecting to have, all the comfort and love is dissolving in front of you. And you're now no longer in the marriage club because you're going through a divorce. Something that you're reminded of hourly, perhaps. And every conversation in your mind seems to turn to the spouse that you're losing. Divorce is a very public statement, he says. And even though half of our culture is experiencing divorce, it still is very painful and filled with baggage and stereotyping. And the suddenness of the divorce is very disturbing, he says. He talks about how, you know, your courtship, it took a long time. Your, the gifts that you were planning for the wedding and all of the planning and preparation and all the lead into your wedding... All of all the time that you spend together, all of a sudden, that is gone in a moment if one or the other spouse decides to jet, decides to leave. The abrupt nature of marriage ending leaves little time for you to get used to the idea. You're used to saying, hey, we went here or we did this, and all of a sudden you're saying, I did this and I did that. And that, that can be sort of insulting to have to rework your vocabulary, Right? That's what he's talking about, the embarrassment that's here. He said that it took him three weeks, actually, to admit to people that he was going through a divorce. Actually, he was invited to a wedding, and he and his spouse were supposed to be there, and they were already divorced, and he showed up and basically lied about his divorce, saying that his wife was sick and couldn't be there and was having to work through all of the people saying, we're so sorry that your wife is sick, and we wish that she would get well, and... It's just awful. And he says it's a painful insult to go through a divorce. And this is one that doesn't even have kids involved. The pain increases all the more, as many of you know, when children are involved and hurt by divorce. As Christians, we suffer the guilt and shame of working through the sin issues connected to a divorce. Whether you've gone through a biblical divorce or an unbiblical divorce, there's all kinds of guilt and things that you have to work through personally. The good news is, is that the Bible anchors us to think through the issues of divorce, to think through where you are or how you've been impacted by something like that. Or perhaps you've never been impacted by a divorce, and the Bible, again, it gives you the ability to counsel and help other people who would be going through a divorce or who have gone through a divorce or who have had parents who've been Divorce. That's what church is all about. This should be a safe haven and a place where people can find answers and solutions who've gone through something that difficult. Well, if you look at the text here, the lead-in verses to where Jesus is talking about divorce in verses 27 to 30 is where Jesus is talking about adultery, which it's an apropos lead-in to the discussion of divorce and how immorality is what oftentimes implodes marriages. Jesus equates lust with divorce, with adultery. And he does this to say, listen, 
The law should be taken seriously on a heart level. It's not enough just to not commit adultery. If there's adultery happening in your heart, if you're this lustful person, then that is the seed for bad things happening even in marriage. And so Jesus is picking up on this theme in marriage in verses 31 and 32. The Pharisees, they were trying to relax the law. We've talked about that a lot. They were trying to make the law something that you can superficially keep. As long as you don't do this or you don't do that, then you're okay. And Jesus is taking things deeper and deeper into the heart. And he's saying, listen, there are deeper, more spiritual issues than just external obedience here. You need to be faithful on a heart level for marriage to go well. Well, there are two, two positions that Jesus compares on divorce. The Pharisees, their position is that divorce is easy. And Jesus' position is that divorce is hard, is hard. Divorce is easy. Look at verse 31. The Pharisees were saying, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. As if, look. If you're going to divorce, all you got to do to be lawful or right with God is just follow through the process, step one, two, and three, and you're good. Sound familiar? And they were picking up on this from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'd ask you to turn over there. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is where the Pharisees were twisting what Moses was teaching in Deuteronomy 24. The Pharisees were twisting scripture. This is what people will do, even in the church, to justify unbiblical, ungodly divorces. And the Pharisees were doing this. Follow as I read verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it, puts it in her hand and sends her to sends her out of his house, and she departs out of the house. Let's stop there. This is a scenario where Moses is talking about divorce that was going on in the society. And the Pharisees were making something that Moses was referencing and talking about into a command. Moses here is making a concession that divorce was happening. Just like it's happening in and through our society and in and through our churches. Moses is saying it is happening and he's painting a scenario where someone would give a wife or a wife give a husband a certificate of divorce. For the Pharisees, they saw this as their opportunity to relax the law, to make it not about the heart, and to say, listen, if you have this kind of scenario, all you got to do is give them a certificate of divorce and you're good. That's what they were doing. Step one, look at verse one again. The husband finds no favor in his eyes for the woman. Step two, he has found an indecency in her, perhaps some sort of sexual sin he found out about later on. And then the husband writes a certificate as if, almost as if he's obligated to do this. He found some indecency in her, and so he's going to work through the perfunctory process of giving her a certificate of divorce. Easy divorce also was mainstream in the culture of Jesus. Uh, not only were the Pharisees twisting the scripture to fit this kind of opportunity, 
But there were rabbis who were promoting it in and through the culture. They would have been like the mainstream media of the day. Rabbis Shammai and Hillel were in a public debate. And their schools of, of Jewish thought were debating each other. This was very public. Where Rabbi Shammai was taking Deuteronomy 24.1. And he was saying, look, if you find a particular indecency in the woman, then you've got the right to divorce. But, but nothing else. Only that. And probably it's something of a sexual nature. Probably not adultery because you'd be killed for that. But some sort of sexual indecency. And then you have the right to um, give her a certificate of divorce. He was uh, really um, missing the point as well, even though he would be more biblical than Rabbi Hillel. You know, just as a side note, adultery, it was a sin that Deuteronomy 22:22 referenced as something that you could be executed for, but that was not always the case. There was grace even in the law regarding that situation. If you think about it, David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, there was no sense in which he was going to be executed, nor was Bathsheba. Joseph, when he was in an engagement period, betrothed to Mary, and he found her to be with child, he was putting her away, right? But there was no sense in which he was sending her off to her death to be stoned. They were just going to be separated. In John 8, verses... 1 through 12, the woman that was caught in adultery that the Pharisees brought up to Jesus to be stoned. You know, they said, look, she's violated the law of God. She deserves to be put to death. And Jesus said, no, you know, he who has no sin casts the first stone. And he said to her, look, go and sin no more. So not in every case was someone um, who was found caught in adultery, would they be stoned? But the elders could adjudicate that matter, and they had the right to have someone killed in that way. But again, this rabbi, Shammai, was saying some kind of indecency, perhaps even um, the indecency of adultery. If that was found in her, then you would write a certificate of divorce. But I don't think that was the biblical point at all. And Rabbi Hillel, for sure, was less biblical than that. And he was saying, look... Indecency here doesn't have to be a sexual sin or a sexual matter. It could be anything at all. As a husband, if you found anything wrong with your wife at all, if she burned the Pop-Tarts in the morning, you could burn the marriage. You could, you could send her away. I mean, literally, in, in the annals, it, they didn't mention Pop-Tarts, but they did talk about the idea and scenario that if the wife burned breakfast, she could be, you know, divorceable. Probably uh, more was the case where the husband would find interest in someone else and someone else would catch his fancy and he liked her better than his present wife. And so that was the indecency where he could, again, write her the certificate of divorce. And Rabbi Hillel was saying, hey, go for it. That's all fair game. Does that sound familiar? That's how our society thinks today. And it's missing the biblical point altogether. Both views miss um, Jesus's intent and Moses' intent. Moses was putting limitations on things. And actually, the command is not in verse 1. The command in Deuteronomy 24 is found in verse 4. Follow as I read through the scenario. Again, the husband has found some indecency in her, verse 1. He writes her the certificate of divorce and sends her away. And then in verse 2, she gets remarried. 
if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, here's the command, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. You know what the point is? The point is this. Because divorce was happening, Moses put some limitations on it and said, listen, if the scenario is one where a husband divorces his wife, finding some reason to do that, divorces her, and then she gets married to somebody else and that guy either dies or he turns around and divorces her, then by no means can you as the original husband take her back. Moses was basically putting some caution on getting married in the first place and saying, listen, you better think hard and long about getting married in the first place because you can't just divorce someone and then expect things to work out where they come back to you later on. That's, that's the point. That's the command that's found in verse 4. You say, why, why would the situation be defiling to the land? Well, you've got to remember in the old covenant system, there were all kinds of foods and things that you couldn't touch or eat. And in the same way, once you dissolved a marriage, there could not be restoration in that old covenant system because it would be defiling to the land. And that's what he's talking about. It's a warning. It's a warning not to get divorced in the first place. That was Moses' point. That's so different than what the Pharisees were doing with the scripture. They were twisting it and they were working it to make things superficial where you could just go, one, two, three, I'm out. I'm out of the marriage. And instead, that wasn't Moses, what he was doing at all. And actually, the point that the Pharisees were making, was making, was very indefensible. And you'll find this in Matthew chapter 19. Turn over there to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, you have Jesus taking this head on with the Pharisees. The Pharisees in verse 3 came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Here's Jesus' answer. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Though Jesus was taking the Pharisees head on, he absolutely kind of ignored their question. Because he knew the Pharisees were trying to trap him and trip him up. They were trying to get Jesus to say something like John the Baptist had just said to get Jesus in trouble. See, John the Baptist, when he showed up, in that part of Judea, which is exactly where Jesus was, John the Baptist, he went right up to Herod Antipas and said, you know what, I've heard about your marriage, it's unlawful. Herod Antipas had seduced his brother Philip's wife to himself and had taken uh, that wife to himself and her name Herodias, and that was unlawful. And John the Baptist got thrown into jail for that, and ultimately Herodias put her daughter, their daughter, up to requesting the head of John the Baptist to be served on a platter. And Herod Antipas, even though he was afraid of the crowds, did that very thing and had John the Baptist's head lopped off. Well, the Pharisees knew this had happened, and because Jesus was standing there, they wanted to trip Jesus up so that he would give the same kind of denunciation on Herod Antipas and get 
his head cut off too. Or they were trying to get Jesus to say something different than Deuteronomy 21. They would, they would try to also pit Moses against Jesus. And Jesus would have none of that because he understood the law for what it really was and what it really meant, not for what the Pharisees were doing. In fact, what Jesus did is he grounded his position in Scripture. It's so interesting. There's so many people who want to debate things and make things controversial by twisting Scripture or by using one verse out of context and then off you go and round round and round you go and you have a bad witness because you get upset and debate things without actually digging deeper into the scripture. And here's Jesus, the son of God, who could just base things on his own authority. But where does he go? He bases his arguments back in the Bible, which is just amazing. What humility the son of God had to go back to the writings of Genesis to defend his position. And he goes to Genesis chapter 2, 24, and says, verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh, speaking of Adam and Eve. And then he builds on that and says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The foundation for what Jesus was going to say had to be based on the fact that God's original design and intent for any marriage was for two to be joined in covenant relationship forever. That was his position. That's the groundwork and the foundation. And then any concession that's made in Deuteronomy 24, that was to create limitations on divorce that was already happening. But he goes further. Look at the text again. He actually gives the blame where the blame was due for where divorce comes from in the first place. And he said, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You know what he's saying? He's saying... Moses never commanded divorce. He never prescribed divorce. It was never part of God's original design in the first place. But Moses did make an allowance. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, there was grace. Because things got very complicated very quickly because of sin. And because people's hearts get hardened. And notice the language here. He's saying, because of your hardness of heart in verse 8. Here's the Pharisees. They're standing there. They're probably going, what? This is about my hardness of heart? Aren't we talking about Deuteronomy 24? What, wasn't that written thousands of years ago? And you're saying my heart? Yeah, yeah. Your hardness of heart. That's why you're bringing this up. You're trying to create loopholes and undo the fabric of marriage by saying, hey, as long as this happens, we can just divorce one, two, or three. And Jesus is saying, no, divorce is not easy. Divorce is hard. It's weighty. It's difficult. And there need to be limitations. And that's what Moses was doing. And that's what Jesus does back in Matthew chapter 5. Turn back to Matthew 5. Jesus in Matthew 5 is saying divorce is also, is not easy, but is instead hard. And in verse 32, he's doing what Moses was doing by giving some limitations regarding divorce. Jesus' point is the same as Moses' point. Follow again, verse 32 of chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Stop there. Jesus, again, like Moses, he never commanded divorce. This isn't a command. This isn't your right to divorce. This isn't where you begin. In other words, if your spouse has been unfaithful, 
Perhaps the man being unfaithful in his heart, in his mind. I mean, the word for adultery is porneia. Perhaps it's a, it's a spouse that has a, an addiction to pornography. That's not necessarily grounds for divorce. In fact, it's not grounds for it. There's just an allowance made there if a husband or a wife has been unfaithful and committed adultery. But there's not a command given that you should or must divorce. Jesus never commanded it to be that way. In fact, because we believe in the gospel, the first option is never divorce. It's never divorce. If you were to come to me and say, you know what, I want to divorce my spouse, we would talk long and hard about the gospel, about the power of the gospel, about your relationship to Christ, about your spouse's relationship to Christ, and and begin there for quite a while before we would get to whether or not there needs to be an allowance, a concession made. Because the marriage is a one flesh covenant relationship that's sacred. Hosea reflects this kind of commitment. If you've read that minor prophet um, recently, you know that Hosea is one where as a minor prophet, he was prophesying to the people of God through six different kings, six different reigns where things were pretty prosperous, but because they were prosperous, Israel was going downhill fast and they were beginning to get laxed in their morality, becoming very immoral and beginning to serve other idols and, and live in all kinds of licentious sin. And because of that, God sort of wanting Hosea to get the point and for Hosea to represent God's heart to them, he said, Hosea, go and marry this woman who is going after, she's whoring after other men. Her name is Gomer. Go marry Gomer. I've heard it said, look, if you're going to marry someone named Gomer, you're asking for trouble in the first place. But anyway, he, he said, go marry Gomer, who was... As uh, Hosea 1-2, she was playing the whore and she was having children of whoredom. And this was to represent a land and a people that was committed to great whoredom and forsaking the Lord. All of this was happening 20 years before Assyria was ultimately going to capture the northern kingdom and bring them into captivity as God's judgment. But before that took place, in Hosea chapter 3 verse 1... God gives grace, and he does it symbolically through the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. And he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. In other words, Gomer had forsaken Hosea's marriage and had become the adulterer. And it says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. What is that a picture of? The picture is this. The gospel says, if your spouse commits adultery, go after that spouse, love that spouse, even though he or she has loved another person. That's the heart of God. The gospel is the gospel of second chances. Let there be restoration if that would be the Lord's will. It's a picture of grace here, just as God gave grace again and again to his people, the people of Israel. So again, back to Matthew 5, instead of answering the Pharisee's question head on, he does what Moses was doing uh, by saying there needs 
There needs to be some limitations on scenarios where someone is unfaithful in a marriage. And so if you follow verse 32, he's saying this, saying, if there is sexual immorality, then you can consider a divorce. But if there's not sexual immorality and someone leaves the marriage, and that is an unbiblical divorce, then if that person marries someone else, and the assumption in these passages always is that there is going to be another marriage, if if that person marries someone else, because the original marriage has not been broken in the eyes of God, that person is committing adultery. Then he flips it around and says, if you marry that person that left a marriage in an unbiblical way, and you marry that person, because that person is still married in the eyes of God, and if you then marry that person, you're committing adultery. That's the point of verse 32. These are warnings. These are limitations. These are ways to protect the sanctity of marriage. It's a covenant relationship. Romans 7, 2 says that death is when someone is released from the law of marriage. Now, again, I don't pretend to say this morning that I'm unpackaging every variety of divorce scenarios. And I know that there are many scenarios that you could bring to me, perhaps ones where you were an unbeliever and you married an unbeliever and then you became a believer, and scenarios that the Apostle Paul even addresses in 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm happy to sit down with you or other elders can to talk through your scenario to see what options you have in your life and to pray with you through the hurt of any divorce situation, whether it's biblical or whether it's unbiblical. We want to pastor you in that way, but I do want to be faithful to say what Jesus said. But I also want to build upon this real quickly from 1 Corinthians 7. Turn over there to see what Paul said. We've seen what Moses said, and we've seen what Jesus said, and now I want to look quickly at what Paul said regarding divorce Paul says the same thing that Jesus said in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He doesn't contradict Jesus, but then later goes on to add to what Jesus said. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 is where he says, To the married I give this charge. Now watch this. Not I, but the Lord. He's just repeating what Jesus had already taught. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, if there is an unbiblical sense in which there's a separation, the spouse should remain unmarried. It's a warning. But then he goes on to build upon this teaching with new revelation. This isn't lesser revelation or contradictory revelation to what Jesus had said, but it's building upon it in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, so the Lord had not taught this, but Paul now is, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. The issue is this. You'd have an unbeliever that would marry an unbeliever and then someone in the marriage would become a believer. And that believer would get nervous and think, man, if I stay with this unbeliever, that person's going to corrupt me and perhaps even corrupt my kids. That wasn't the case at all. If you look at verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
In other words, there's a splash effect of the gospel that trickles down just because you're a believer in the home. We so often underestimate the power of the gospel, don't we? You could be called to stay with an unbelieving spouse your whole life just because the gospel is powerful enough to sustain you through it. Or even one day, maybe even win that person to Christ. And for sure, you're going to be influencing your kids by staying together and having that redemptive influence in the home. I've talked to people that say, listen, you don't know how bad it is. My husband really, he, he, he tears me apart with his words all the time. And I'm quick to remind that spouse, listen, if you'll be faithful and you'll be sustained in the gospel, your kids will watch the abuse in the home and they'll watch you respond to it well. And that will be redemptive to them. That could win them to Christ. And let alone 1 Peter 3 that talks about how sometimes we do win our spouse without even saying a word. You know, I remember working uh, construction and the crew chief was this guy who was like Blackbeard the pirate. And I've talked about him before. You know, it scarred me for life and scarred me physically. Anyway, uh, anyway, he, he, you know, he could do some amazing things with a nail gun. And um, anyway, he was a tough guy, but the one area where he was not so tough was in relation to his marriage, which I found out after coming on to the crew that summer that he was married to someone who had come to Christ, and she was a black belt in karate. And so she was tough anyway. <laughs> and he, he would draw the weapons that she would use and, you know, do all her little kata routines with. But, but he was reduced to sort of this little child talking about her, and, and I think it was because she was strong in the Lord. And the Lord had styled it that my buddy and I would work on the crew um, that summer and preach and preach the gospel to him while his wife was at home winning him without a word. And so you can see how the Lord works through these things in masterful ways. But there's also a sense in which an unbeliever might leave the home. Look at verse 15, 1 Corinthians 7. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, if your spouse ultimately, utterly abandons you and leaves you and leaves your children, then you're free again. You're free to remarry again. That's the point. That's the point. There are three scenarios where you can remarry Biblically, One is by death when your spouse dies. Romans 7, 2 um, gives you that allowance to marry again. If there's sexual immorality or pornea in the home, there's an allowance there that that ultimately could destroy a marriage. And the spouse could be free to remarry if that's going on. And then thirdly, abandonment. If a spouse leaves as an unbeliever, you could be free again to remarry. It's not necessarily something you have to do or or should do, but there's an allowance made there by God's grace for remarriage. My point is this. The world assumes that these matters are easy, and they never are. Even if you have clear biblical warrant and tracks to do what you're going to do, it's never easy. And I just want to say, that, that was Jesus' point. This is not an easy road. This is not step one, two, and three. This is something that you need to understand at a spiritual level. You need to think through prayerfully and carefully in terms of your covenant relationship and marriage. A couple points as we close. Number one, the gospel offers hope for marriage, no no matter its present state. Your marriage could be very tenuous, but you know what? You're not called, first and foremost, to be happy in marriage. 
heard a preacher say it this way. Sometimes marriage is so tough, you just need to drive. You just drive. You just put it in gear and try to be faithful. God gives you the power to be faithful, not necessarily the opportunity to be in blissful happiness. Don't live for happiness. Live for godliness, and the happiness will come and flow out of that. Seeing marriages, my wife and I have counseled people where the husband and wife show up and you know, one or the other has already given up. And, and, and even scenarios where you know, this person was talking about this guy that she's kind of involved with emotionally at work and you know, we're sitting there going, man, it's like that person's already made up their minds. Now the gospel's big enough to turn that thing around but they, these are real life scenarios where sometimes an unbeliever leaves and you have to let him leave. I've been in a scenario where I've talked to a guy who was still married, but his wife lived in another state. Um, had, they had been sort of separated for years, and I had to call this woman and say, do you want to reconcile with your husband? And she laughed at me. She laughed at the thought, you know. And it was just inconvenient for them to be divorced, and ultimately they were divorced. And he was free to remarry. Number two, the gospel offers hope to you if you've been divorced for biblical divorces. And I want to say this, for unbiblical divorces. Both are painful and both carry all kinds of weight and difficulty through them. But if you've gone through a biblical divorce, you're anchored in God's word. And you need to know the issues in detail so that you can find grace in the scripture. If you've been through an unbiblical divorce or you believe that you've gone through an unbiblical divorce, let me just say this to you. God's sovereignty is still ruling over even that. And the Bible says God is king and his sovereignty rules over all things. All things are happening after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.10. So that precise knowledge that God is working through even difficult scenarios that seem so complex and confusing that they're like a, a spooled up you know, web of line on your rod and reel that could never be untangled, God's sovereignty can cover even that. And we're available. We want to work through issues like that to find grace for your life and give you wisdom as to what you should do next in scenarios like that. Number three. The gospel offers power to take your wedding vows seriously. Just want to put that in there. You know, this isn't just for you who've gone through a divorce or, or are impacted by divorce. We are soberly committed to each other in marriage. And we need to have a testimony of covenant-keeping marriages. And the only way to do that is to know that the gospel gives you the power to keep your promise. I want to point that out. Oftentimes at midlife... You know, after people have been married for 15 years and their kids are teenagers, people start to say, you know, I'm just dissatisfied. I'm ready to throw it in. I want something new. I've got the second half of my life. And they miss out because they miss on all of the investment, all of the blood, sweat, and tears that you go through for the first 15. You're throwing that away and you're starting over again. You know, you gotta, you gotta say, man, I've, you know, I've earned my yellow belt and orange belt. Now I want to be a black belt in marriage, and you're starting over at white belt again. You know, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. If you throw your spouse away, you don't know who you're starting over with. Don't kid yourself. And our society wants to tell you, hey, that would be a fine scenario. Just go for that. It's not true. You're throwing it away if you don't take your wedding vows 
seriously. I, I've known a couple um, in the counseling room in another church where uh, they were married for quite some time and had some kids, and they confessed to me that they had not shared an intimacy for a year and a half. It's like a practical divorce going on in the home, right? But again, the gospel healed that scenario. It did. Because the gospel gives you the power to be committed to each other in that way. Number four, the gospel offers power to singles for singleness. Why do I throw that in? Well, we talk all about marriage and divorce, and I just don't want to leave the singles out. If you're single, basically you need to understand you're married to Christ. You're completely unhindered, and your interests are not divided, as 1 Corinthians 7.34 says. You're free to minister to other people. And a message like this needs to be a reminder that singleness isn't all that bad in comparison to a really rough marriage or a divorce, right? So just be sobered by the reality of what you're getting into when you choose someone to marry. Think long and hard, get counsel, and realize that a lot of marriages are not making it. So you want to make it by being committed to the right person. Number five, the gospel offers power for you to minister to others impacted by divorce. If you say, I've not been impacted by divorce, this doesn't really apply to me. Well, it applies to everybody else. And so don't be afraid to use God's word to comfort people in their difficulty. Go there, talk to people about it. Talk to people about how they've been impacted. They had parents who divorced and that's really hard or, or just other scenarios where you can bring God's word to bear in the life of someone else and bring grace to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in your truth. And I pray, God, that um, for those who are hurting this morning, that they would be healed in their hearts by your word. Your word is a balm to us. It gives us direction. It's like we're, we're running around in the night, in the dark, not knowing where the path is. And we're emotional basket cases because we aren't clear on life. And then your word shines a clear light to our path and gives us direction for where we need to go. And I pray that's what this has been for many marriages and for many people who feel hopeless. Perhaps people who have lost their loved one or have been divorced or have gone through a divorce and they're hopeless, but there is instead great hope from your word for them. And I pray, God, that the body of Christ would minister the truth in their lives and they would find hope in the gospel. I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, who needs to be a believer in their home for the sake of their kids and for the sake of their spouse. I pray that you would save that person that person who still needs to know you for the first time, that you transform their hearts. Lord, thank you for this day. And we we praise you even for Vacation Bible School that's coming this week. And I pray, God, that uh, many children would come to faith in Christ through your word there as well. Thank you for Jamie Ferguson and all the volunteer staff and workers who are pouring their lives into this week for the sake of the gospel, the advancement of your kingdom. There are many children who would point back to VBS as the first time that you open their eyes to behold Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so I pray that would happen this week. We thank you, God, for this service and for this flock. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we're dismissed. Um, I want to just mention to you, we have counselors that stand up here that would receive you if you need counsel or help.
in any way whatsoever. If you need to know Christ, we also have a guest reception down the hallway in the chapel. We're probably going to be moving the food in here to combine our fellowship. But if you're new, we want to know you. And so there are people from our church and leaders that will be there to welcome you in the Lord. And we also have an information table here for any info you need regarding our church. Go in grace and peace this week and be salt and light to Anchorage. Dismissed. Mm -hmm.